Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Look out! It's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, an icebreaker, and I love films. As Resla Aslan once said, Religion engenders both inclusion and exclusion. It spawns as much conflict in society as it does cohesion. Religion divides people as much as the film Don't Look Up does. Yeah, fair play. I really enjoyed it. Every week, I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died. Then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Kevin Smith, Sharon Stone, and even Ped Clambles. But this week, it's the brilliant writer, actor, director, and stand-up, Mr. Mike Babiglia. I think there's only a couple of tickets left for films to be buried with live at the South Bank Centre on Saturday 12th of February. Come along, bring a date, it's going to be a hot one. The last tickets are available at southbankcentre.co.uk and plosive.co.uk. Thank you to everyone who has already bought tickets, it's going to be very exciting. Nice to see you all there. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you'll get an extra 20 minutes of chat with Mike. We go deep, we talk about beginnings and endings, you get a secret, you get the whole episode uncut and as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Ted Lasso, as always, is available on Apple TV+. Plus. Both seasons, you can watch them all in one go. You can find Super Bob and you can find Soulmates, both on Amazon Prime in various countries. So go and watch them all now, but not right now. Listen to this and then watch them. You know, you've got a lot. Of, you've all got busy lives. So, Mike Babiglia is one of the great stand-ups. He is known for his storytelling shows. He has also made two stone-cold classic films, Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice. I spend a lot of time on this episode talking about the ins and outs of Don't Think Twice in particular. So if you've never seen Don't Think Twice, I highly recommend you watch it before listening to this one. It's a fucking great film anyway, plus you'll enjoy this one all the more for having seen it. We recorded this the other day on Zoom. It's the first time I met him. It was lovely to talk to him. It was a really good time. I think you're really going to like this one. I loved it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 183 of Films to be Buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by an actor, a writer, a producer, a podcaster, a director, and one of the greatest stand-ups of all time, 
please, will you welcome to the show? We can't believe he's here, but he is here. He's on Zoom, <laughs> in person, but on a Zoom, digitally, in the world, right in front of us, right now, coming in your ears. It's the one, the only, he's here for just one night only. Please welcome to the show. It's the brilliant. It's here he is. It's Mr. Uh, Michael Miglia. Wow. What an amazing introduction. <laughs> that was so exciting. Welcome. Welcome. So pleased to have you. I'm a huge fan. Very excited we're doing this. Thanks. I've got some things I want to ask you about. Can we get straight into... Okay, first things first. I, I believe you've made at least two masterpieces. First things first. Sleepwalk with me. Yeah. Yeah, we want to talk about it? Well, here's the thing. Okay. It was a stand-up show, and then it was a film. Yes, that's right. And I think most people, including myself, do a stand-up show, possibly with a story in it, and you think, how do I turn it into a film? And everyone tries, and so many of these things don't work. And Sleepwalk With Me is so simple and so brilliant. And I remember watching it and going, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. Like, it's so, <laughs> it's like it's like you'd solved the riddle and the answer was so obvious. It was like, oh, yeah, 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 that's how you do it. You just do it really oh. fucking well and clear. It's really good. Thanks, man. You know, I, f- I feel like, go, uh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I'm curious if there was a very long process to decide to work out the film version of that. You know, the story is clear, but the, yeah, tell me. Well, yeah. So I'd always wanted to make films. Part of the reason I like this podcast so much is that it's a cinephiles podcast and it's so in the weeds of like why we love film. And I I had studied screenwriting in school. And of course, you know, your, your, your listeners are cinephiles too. So they sort of know that like, there's no real path to becoming a filmmaker. I mean, there's no application process. I mean, I studied screenwriting and then it's just like, I'm going to be a screenwriter. And then it's like, well, <laughs> how? How would you even do that? Yeah. And and of course, like, you know, everybody has, you know, there's the becoming a screenwriter and then there's the figuring out a path to becoming a screenwriter or a filmmaker in any way, shape or form. And those two things are like, they're almost separate journeys in a way, uh, mm. figuring out the, how to crack that. So I was working at the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv in college, and I was getting stage time whenever they would let me be on stage. I was bringing nachos to tables and things. And then um, I realized, like, maybe I could be a stand-up comedian making a couple hundred bucks a week, driving my mom's station wagon around the country to sort of hell gigs that the character in the film goes to, you know. And and I thought, okay, if I could do that, maybe that well, that's a job I, I would really enjoy. And so And so I did that. And then along the way... Along the way, I sort of started to develop this show, which was called Sleepwalk With Me, which eventually was adapted in the film. And it's all about my personal journey towards, you know, this artistic uh, journey of, of being honest on stage and being honest about who you are. And, and then it's also about my own struggles with sleepwalking, which is like a real disorder I had. And I really did jump through a second story window and also... You know, it's just in about this breakup, this really hard breakup I had in my 20s. And so I developed it as a solo show and I was doing it in clubs like like, mm. you know, the comedy store, you know, the, the, I'm trying to think of the, the London comps, the comps of, of what I clubs in uh, in Britain. But it, but that's sort of where I was doing it, because we don't have like the like Sleepwalk With Me, the original show is is really akin to like an Edinburgh show, but, yeah, but I, exactly, I've never, yeah. I've never played Edinburgh, you know, I've never done it. Um, no, so it. You do very well. I, I really want, I, I've always wanted to go. I've always wanted to go, but it's just never, whatever. It's never quite worked out or, right. and so anyway, 
I was performing this at comedy clubs and it was this thing where where it wasn't called Sleepwalk with me, but but then I was working with a director, this guy Seth Barish, who's a wonderful director I've worked with now for about 16 years. And we mounted it with some producers off Broadway in 2008. And I'd been doing comedy about eight years. Uh, I graduated from college in 2000. So it, we ran off Broadway at the Bleecker Street Theater for about eight or nine months. And in the process of that, this company that makes independent films was one of the producers and they optioned it as a screenplay. And so I worked on it with Ira Glass and Seth Barish and my brother Joe and we we um, did it as a screenplay. But then what happened was, and this is, I think, what you're speaking to when you're saying, like, <laughs> you cracked the thing, which is how hard it is to make solo shows into movies, mm. which, which is that we delivered it to the company that that optioned it. They didn't they didn't like it. They mm. were like, no, we're not going to make this. Oh, shit. And and I said, well, I think I'm just going to try to wrangle a small amount of money together. And then just direct it on my own. Because previous mm-hmm. to that, we were going out to big indie film directors and stuff like that. And people were attached. Yeah. And it was very like the Hollywood way kind of thing. Yeah. Like, And so I was like, I'm going to take this on my own. And the guy who is the producer, and, and we're still friendly to this day, but he really was like, you will fail. <sighs> you know, he's like, this will fail. Oh my he's like, God. you don't understand. You don't understand what you're getting into. You don't know how to direct a movie, et cetera. And of course he's right, but the only way you learn how to direct a movie is by directing a movie. That's the that's the conundrum of directing yeah. movies or doing anything of that scope, right? So yeah. so we wrangled together like about a million dollars through different investors and things. Mm-hmm. And we made uh this movie Sleepwalk with me and I will say like you're saying like it worked, but like it didn't always work. Like we shot it and we got in the edit and we're like well, this this doesn't work. And then there was a way in which, you know how in the in the movie I talk to the camera while I'm driving and I yeah. tell these monologues and I say, I'm going to tell you a story and blah, 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 and I'm talking to the camera. That was in the edit that we found that. Uh, originally, it was embedded in the film in this, these kind of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of monologues yeah. where I would turn to camera mid-scene and start monologuing to camera. And... In the in the edit, it was so campy, and we were just like, "This doesn't work. What are we gonna do?" I mean, I remember being in the edit with my my editor Jeffrey Richmond, who's brilliant, and I was just like, "He and he went on. He recently did Escape at Denimora and like so many great things." But I was just like, "Jeff, what are we gonna do? This movie's a disaster." And Jeff is so he's a real calm person, and he goes, "We're gonna turn it in when it's done." Mm. And and one day, Jeff and I had this idea of like, well, what if we did those monologues? What if we just did them from a car and we shot them real scrappy, you know, and so they don't look like the rest of the movie so that yeah. there's a sense of like there's this storytelling and then there's this in flashback. And so I went out with a camera operator and we just drove around Connecticut and New Jersey and we just shot these things fast and loose and then we dropped them in and we're like, oh, this is cool. Now this right. this feels this feels like something. We're starting to get laughs. We're starting, you know, we're showing it to test audiences of 10 people. And now they're laughing. And they didn't used to laugh. Early in the process, we're like, oh no, nobody's laughing. Fucking hell. Part of it, and part of part of the reason why I think they were laughing was that we changed the monologues from being in the present tense to the past tense. So, in other words, if you tell someone, so you know. I'm jumping out a window. They're like, 
oh no, they're worried about you. But you say, a few years ago, I jumped through a window and they can see you're okay. Yeah. There's, they, they can laugh about it. It's like that old thing about like tragedy plus time. Yeah. It's like, they need to know you're okay. Yes. Fascinating. I, I got, all right, I've got so many questions of that. First question, well, to do with the film is, I mean, my experience in all these things is first cut of anything, the, the first cut, the rough cut, the first cut. I've never seen one where I was like, oh, this is good. Every single one of them I've gone, I need to quit the business and throw myself off a cliff. Every single Awful. first yeah. cut I've seen. Have, is that always your experience? Yeah. So I've, I've made two features and a few short films. And uh, the other one was Don't Think Twice. And, and both times with Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice, it was definitely jump off a cliff, quit the business, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, pack up and go home. Don't tell anybody this happened. You know, <laughs> yeah. just like it's awful. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? But I think that's true for everyone. I think I, just, I, I rarely hear people go like, oh, yeah, I've seen the first cut. It's amazing. It's usually like, oh, it's fucked. <laughs> no, it's no. I've 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 almost never heard of first cuts yeah. doing well. My other question is, and did I misunderstand your story? You were working at this comedy club. Yeah, you you didn't want to be a stand up. You were just working there, and then you're like, no, well, no, maybe no, I no. Be a stand-up. No, it was more like I got the job because I had won a contest at my college for at my university for funniest person on campus, and <laughs> and it was. <laughs> Actually, Nick Kroll was in the contest. That's actually how we met and became friends. What did you have to do in the contest? Stand-up comedy. Yeah. Oh, okay. It wasn't like wacky, wacky stuff on campus. No, no. We we both yeah. did stand-up comedy uh, for the first time. It was when me and Nick both did stand-up for the first time. And then we became friends after that and did improv together for a few years. And okay. uh, so I won. And then one of the things that I won was the opportunity to perform at the Washington, D.C. Improv, and which is right. the comedy club in Washington. And because we went to Georgetown and I opened for Dave Chappelle. This is pre Dave Chappelle show. And I mean, this is back when half baked, mm-hmm. you know, era of Dave Chappelle. And it was it went it went pretty well. And then I said to the club, like, can I do this all the time? I'd love to be an MC. And they basically said, like, everyone wants to be a comedian. You know, like right. it's there's no slots. We don't want yeah. you, but we like you. And you could, you know, you could bring food to tables and you could take tickets at the door and you could watch shows for free. And so then I was able to watch Mitch Hedberg and, you know, Mm -hmm. Margaret Cho and Dave Chappelle and all these people who were the best. You know, it was just like the the headliners of the country coming through every week. And so I was just watching very intently. And then I essentially I would fill in when someone didn't show up. Amazing. I mean, and that was it. It was, like, and then I would do open mics at another place at this yeah. at this motel at this motel every Wednesday, called the Best Western in Virginia. I would do open mics, and I would just bomb so hard. And then when I got out of college, I just drove around the country and tried to make it work. And then when when my comedy career got going to be okay, I had enough sort of like equity with audiences to be like i want to put on a solo show and and that's sort of how it happened and then since then if people don't know my work like since then i did a bunch of solo shows like my girlfriend's boyfriend thank god for jokes the new one and then the the new show is called the old man and the pool which i'm doing right now in berkeley california for three weeks and then and then i'm going to be in in london at the leicester square in june right so that's exciting i'd like to quickly talk about don't think twice which I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about, but I think it is magnificent. And I also think it is devastating. I think it's a devastating film, Don't Think Twice. 
One of the things I'm fascinated by about it is I think it captures live comedy in a way that film almost never does. And I wonder what your secret was for that. And was that, a, again, was that a difficult thing to work out? Because I rarely think, when you see stand-up in films and stuff, it, it, it rarely connects in the way that it does in the room live. And I, yeah. I always think, I think it's because there's a lack of jeopardy because you're not in the audience. There's a sort of, there's a weird, and often if the audience in the film are laughing in a way that you at home are not are laughing, it disconnects. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so yeah, many things. Yeah, no, that, that's a huge, I, I think what you're describing is a huge problem with performance films in general, mm. like any kind of performance. And to develop Don't Think Twice, I had a series of like 10 or 15 readings in my living room with just like friends comedians filmmakers etc in new york and uh and actually one of the most incisive criticisms that i got you know i would have friends read the parts and we do a little reading and then we'd eat pizza afterwards it was it's mm. just it's something i've done over the years with with both of my films and like and actually greta gerwig read the lead in one of the readings and okay. this is i think Right around Francis Ha, maybe okay. right around that. Yeah, it was like 15, I don't know. Uh, it was like 2015. She said to me, I have no notes. She said to me privately, she goes, I have no notes. She goes, the, I would say, if the performance scenes work, the movie will work. Yeah. And if the performance scenes do not work, the film will not work. Yeah. And so she's like, she's like, you really need to like zero in on that. And so I spent... Mm like a lot of time with my cinematographer, Joe Anderson, just sort of staring at performance films. And so we, we had this theory that it's not that novel of a concept, but we had this feeling that if we shot a majority of the film on sticks, you know, on, on tripods, and then we shot the performance stuff handheld, th yeah. there would be a, a liveliness to the performance in sort of almost like in like a sports film or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? And like we found that whenever we were watching comedy performance, it was always from the perspective of the audience. Mm. But theater and stand-up, you can't capture what's in a room, really. And so you can't capture theater, for example, from an audience shot. You just can't do it. There's something about it that ne never quite translates. So we thought if the camera was handheld on Steadicam and it was it was acting as one of the performers in the improv, then as an audience member, we would feel like we were in the scenes with the with the improvisers and that mm. we were improvising and that these were our friends. And so that was the goal. And the even the camera operator was this guy Mike Fuchs and he's an excellent camera operator and we would we all we spent so much time on the choreography of those shots because we would do some scenes that were written to be improvised. And then we would do some scenes that were improvised. And the key thing is that the audience members were a mixture of paid extras, which you have to do for the, for the guild. Right. But then it was also my comedy fans who I reached out to on Facebook and said, would you be willing to come here for like six hours and why, and be a fly on the wall to some stuff that's funny and some stuff that's not funny and just is boring. Yeah. So like a lot of those audience members are real audience members Great. really laughing at stuff. Keegan, Michael Key and Gillian Jacobs and Chris Gethard is doing. Mm -hmm. Cause that's the other thing is like, there's, 
you know, often the extras or the, the the background actors for performance scenes are people who've just been there for 10 hours yeah. and nothing's funny to them anymore. And so that that was that was a big part of it. Yeah, I, I think it maybe is also the connecting the with the camera moving from the stage to the audience that the laugh is genuine, the laugh is spontaneous and you capture it in camera without cutting from performance to here's the laugh. Maybe there's a bit of that. Anyway, it really yeah, it was definitely the, that was definitely the goal. And I really appreciate yeah. it. I mean, it's it's such a it's a, such a small film, it's such a small budget film. It's so meaningful to me when people connect with it. Oh, I forgot. I have a question because I had uh, Gillian Jacobs on this podcast and I asked her this and she said, oh, I have no idea. And I said, I'd ask you and I just remembered. There's a shot. I know it's a very low budget film. There's a shot when they're in the car together. I think it's after the funeral and. There's a hot air balloon in the background of this shot. Oh yeah, that's a lucky accident, or you you paid for a hot air balloon to appear in the background of that, the shot. Matt, can you imagine how much that would cost? That would be like forty thousand dollars on the budget. The um, no, it was definitely one of those things, one of those happy accidents where we got in the edit and we're like, we got to get that in. It's amazing. It really we looks like deliberate. In. It's so perfectly framed. And okay, yeah, I think it's one of those things where. It's funny because I've never I've actually never talked about this in an interview before, but it's 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 a movie that your your audience members would know probably more commonly than than American audience members is like the Steve Coogan, uh, Michael Winterbottom film. The trip was a big inspiration for. Don't oh, Think right. Twice. Yes. Because when I watched the trip, I was like, oh, this is a beautiful trick that they're pulling off here, which is to say they clearly have a dramatic story that is the engine that makes us care about these two characters. Then, and clearly there's a script, but then within that script, they're able to play in such a way that we believe they're real people mm. and, we, and, and we're invested. Like I wanted Don't Think Twice, and sometimes it tricks people. I wanted to feel like, is this a documentary? Is it, are these real yeah. people? Like the other one is Once. Like the movie yeah. Once was like yeah. that for me. That feels like where, that, yeah. Where you just, afterwards you want to just Google it and be like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. is this real? It, what is happening? Yeah. Oh, and the last thing, because I, I don't want to waste all your time talking about something you, no, you know please. all about. No, you're literally talking about the thing that I'm so passionate about this movie, partly oh, because okay, I feel like with Keegan-Michael Key and Gillian Jacobs and Chris Gethard and Joe Anderson, mm. all these people... It's it's a it's such a group effort that it you ever have a project like this where you work on it and you don't feel bad talking about it because the other people are so good oh, yeah. that yeah. like you're admiring of like the whole everybody. Oh, I'm literally in scenes in Ted Lasso where I go, You're so good in the middle of the scene. <laughs> 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 I understand that. You, yourself, in the film, if no one has seen the film, by the way, I will say in the intro, you know, watch the film before you listen to this because I just think it's so good. I, and it's one of the best films about comedy I've ever seen. It's really devastating. It's devastating in the same way Inside Llewellyn Davis is. It's got that similar, like, fuck, is this, is this which one is me? Is this me? Am I? Yes. <laughs> this is, is this me? Yeah. And the character that you play, I, I'm interested in that as well because you play... I, listen, they're all, you care about all of them, they're all, they all feel real, but I guess your character is the, the least sympathetic, is the, is, you know, yeah. is, is yeah. the person with the most negative attributes going on, I suppose, of all the, of all the characters. And I, again, I'm interested that you cast yourself in that, that you did that, like, it's just very cool, but like, was there a particular reason for that, for you to play that? You yeah, me? I mean, it's certainly like an, it's certainly like 
a handful of people who I've known mm. over the years where it's like this. If people don't know the movie, it's like a character who's like a womanizer and he sleeps with his students, improv students and all this stuff. And and he's talented, but he's mm. not going to make it the way that Keegan's character is going to make it. And it's tough because he mentored Keegan's character and you really like feel for him, but he's kind of a jerk, but he's pretty loyal also, you know, like he's like, he's yeah. And it's that thing that you're looking at him going, you're too old to be doing this. But at the same time, it's also working every time, you know, every time a a woman's going home with him, you're thinking, oh no, but then you're going, but she's choosing to go home with him. Like this, this kind of childishness that he has is, as there's a part of it that's very sad but it's work like it, the reason it's not stopping is no one's stopping it like, no yeah no it's, it's um, still working it, as it, at this level you know no i mean it's 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 a totally real i mean i i'm not a full upright citizens brigade like improv like mm. i didn't live the improv existence that like for example chris gathered and tammy sager who are in the movie lived yeah. like that they did the sort of full-on you know improvised Seven days a week, you know, did ASCAT at UCB Theater, all this stuff. I did it for like a couple of years and then I went this route of stand up. But I, part of the impetus for making the film was that every now and then I would improvise and I would do this thing called Mike Birbiglia's Dream. And it would be like my dream cast. I would be like, I'd ask like Ellie Kemper, Chris Gethard, A.D. Bryant, like all these people who are these heavy hitters to just come improvise with me. And one night I did it. And and my wife, Jen, goes, she goes, it's so interesting that, like, everyone is so good at this thing, this skill that is so, it's impossible to sort of monetize. It's not commercial. It's not yeah. like, you know, and she's like, and it's so weird because, like, you know, that person is like, you know, Ellie Kemper, for example, like, is like, a wild international superstar. And that other person, mm. like Connor, Connor Ratliff, who's in the movie, for example, is like, mm. is not that, you know, and is yeah, very yeah. far on the other end of the spectrum. And it's like, that must be weird. And I said, yeah. and, I, and I was like, not only is it weird, I was like, it's a movie. I was like, yeah. that's a movie. That should be a movie because there's this way in which there, there's a hard lesson I experienced in my life. And I think a lot of artists do, which is like, there's a certain point in art where you realize like, it's a group, it's a team sport, acting mm. and comedy and creation. But ultimately, it's not everybody gets the same thing. Yeah. And I sort of grappled with, I mean, the thing I relate to about my character, Miles, is feeling jealousy over the years of like different people who like exploded, yeah. you know, and just being like, oh, man. I guess, you know, and of course I, but then I also relate to Keegan's character because I've gotten things that are crazy. And I was on Letterman when I was in my twenties. And so I had like this bit, you know, like these exciting things. And then I relate to Gillian's character probably the most because there's like a part of me that's like an eternal optimist about art, which is like, we don't have to sell out. We can just do what we do. And forever we're just gonna keep doing it you know yeah. and so like her scenes really break my heart the most because that's who i feel like i am deep down it's really something congratulations on it but but, but to your point of like why did yeah. i pick that that character so like my friend yorma Takone, who's a filmmaker who made he's in the lonely island he made uh okay. pop pop star Never Stop, Never Stopping, Uh, MacGruber, he's made a bunch of stuff, but he was at the readings. 
he was at the readings and he was like uh, at my apartment and he was like, uh, you got to play. And it's Keegan's part, Jack. He's like, you got to play Jack. And I go, no, man, it's got to be somebody who would get on SNL. Like, it's got to be realistic. It's got to be someone who's so good at improv and sketch comedy that you, you without a shadow of a doubt, you go, mm-hmm. yep, he would be on SNL. And, you know, Keegan hosted SNL in the spring. It's like, yeah, the guy on Key and Peele would be cast yeah. on SNL. Wow. Well, that's it's fascinating. Did you, have you had people from that world, from UCB and stuff, come to you and go, fuck you? <laughs> have you yeah. People? Yeah, yeah. You? It's funny because Jamila Jamil was telling me mm-hmm. that uh, I know she's been on this show, right? Yeah, yeah. I heard Big her on this show. Big friend of the podcast. Yes. Yes. So she um, she loves Don't Think Twice. And she was like, you have very polarizing responses in the improv community about the oh, movie. Really? Yeah, well, of course, you know, you're calling out a thing. Yeah, cause, because it's it's very, very truthful. So good. Shit, Mike. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I've, I've forgotten to tell you something. Do you know what's really embarrassing is I, I like, I always bring like a little notebook so that I can make notes if I need to, if we're going to need to cut anything or anything like that. And I always right. make a note and I just written, you know, don't think twice. And I've looked back a page and there was something I should have told you probably at the beginning and i forgot to tell you and when i oh, say no. you're gonna be like you you probably oh. should give me a bit of warning i'll just say it and then we'll we'll deal with the repercussions i, I guess. can so handle you, anything i think i can handle any anything anything at all yeah nothing that would sort of you go ah see that was a bit much yeah i think in a podcast format i'm open to any possibility you've died you're dead oh. <laughs> Problem? Or are you okay with that? No, I'm gonna. I'm okay with it. Okay. I can. I can accept. I can accept it. I now that I'm in it, I'm comfortable feeling it. You've been dead for half an hour, so I suppose you're used to it now. That's good. <laughs> how, how did you die? Well, I um I died from a, a coconut falling on my head. <laughs> straight, straight, solid brain. Yeah. Crushed head. Big coconut. Yeah. I talk about this. I actually, I actually talk about this in my new show, The Old Man in the Pool, because okay. it's all about death and mortality. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I, I did a lot of research on how people die. And I found out that hundreds of people a year on average die from a coconut falling on their head. And, and, and um, wow. my, joke, my joke, of course, is um, do you eat the coconut? <laughs> because because the it's, ri- coconut. It's, it's, it's ripe. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know find the coconuts next to all the corpses oh, that's a good word. <laughs> so hit by coconut yeah i was hit by coconut where were you well i was on um i was on vacation in hawaii and mm. with my family and um they oh, you know did, did they see they saw it yeah, yeah yeah did they laugh at first they took a photo <laughs> they thought it was funny they took photos yeah. and then when they realized that I had no pulse, it became abundantly clear that it was not as funny as they had originally thought. <laughs> uh, do you worry about death? I mean, you've written a whole show about it now. I think about it all the time, yeah. Oh, has that always been the case or is this more recently? <sighs> I think um, there's something about, I'm 43 years old, I think there's something about middle age where you get on, you know, the expression, I don't know if this is a British expression either, but it's like, over the hill. That, that's, a, that's a universal, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is an, ex- yeah, it's an expression I never really understood until I got on the hill. You know what I mean? And I'm looking mm-hmm. around and I'm going, oh, there's natural causes. You know, they're not close, but they're coming. Yeah. And yeah, no, I think about it a lot, especially when you have a child. Like I, I have a six and a half year old child and that's what my whole last show, the new one was about having a child. And, and when you have a child, you start to see like, for me, like I'm an anxious person. So I always see like, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And uh, in a way that's uncomfortable. And mm. then I start to see it for my own child. And then if you start to just do what's next, what's next for a child, you're out of the picture at a certain point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. What's next? What's next? What's next? Can I get out to the head? Yeah, go get it to the head. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> do you uh, think something happens after you die? Do you think there's an afterlife? What do you think on that? I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way to know. I don't have a specific religion or belief system, I, but I'm, I'm open to whatever that, you know, what, what, whatever might unfurl. Do you have a preferred idea of all the theories knocking about? I don't. I think it's probably best that I go into the ground. Uh, my ashes, my ashes. I don't think I don't believe in embalmment. I don't believe in right. any of that stuff. You know, I have a joke in the show where I go, "If we're going to embalm people, why not go all the way and do taxidermy?" Like, oh, it's sad <laughs> that Rajiv. It's <laughs> sad that Rajiv died, but he's catching that football. You know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I like to. Th- I like to think that my body would be of use to the earth in some way. Yeah. Well, I got news for you, Mike Babiglia. There's yeah. a heaven. Everyone there has been embalmed, so it's weird that you turned off his ashes. <laughs> 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 They're all like, well, how do we oh. talk to him? He doesn't really have it. So they've arranged oh. your ashes into a human shape. Oh, no. <laughs> they put it in a plastic oh, container. That's terrible. The <laughs> terrible. Talk about a bad bounce. <laughs> Uh, uh, what's your favorite thing? Because heaven's filled with it. Oh, my favorite thing is pizza. Listen, heaven is made of pizza. The walls are made of pizza. <laughs> the chairs are made of pizza. Again, you're not oh. sure this was the right decision, but you're sitting on pizza. It's not as greasy. It doesn't like stick to you and it doesn't right. burn you. It's just the right temperature. But you can oh eat gosh. the chairs. You can eat the, the, the oh. walls. You, you go to bed, your pillow is a slice. A big old deep, deep oh. pants, doughy slice. And you can eat it as you as you nap. Oh, I love it! And you can't get you, it doesn't affect you in it. You don't get full. You don't. You're not. It's just yeah. perfect. It's really good. Oh, and everyone it. in this heaven, they're obsessed with you, uh, <laughs> m- mostly because you're the only one who turned up as Ash. <laughs> but they also they, <laughs> they they want to know about your life, and they want to know about your life through film. Yeah. And the first thing yeah. they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing? So the first film I remember seeing is um, the uh, the movie Breakin. I don't know if you ever saw this one, but it's a 1984 film about breakdancing, competitive sort of competitive breakdancing. Oh, amazing! And there was a. It's actually it has probably the best name of a sequel that's ever been, which is Breakin Two: Electric Boogaloo. I'm so sorry. I know exactly what you're talking about. I thought you were saying separate words. Break in. I thought it was like a escape movie. You're talking about no, breaking. So breaking, breaking. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was it's all about breakdancing. And mm-hmm. the reason I, I remember it so well is that I was like six years old and my brother and sisters and I, who were older than me, took me to the theater. We were the only people in the theater and we started breakdancing in the theater while we were watching it in, so the, in the aisles and on the rug between the screen and the seats. 
And it was That's pure joy. Fun. Pure joy. That's so nice. What a lovely yeah. story. How old are your <laughs> brother and sister? How much older were they? Uh, so my brother is uh, about five years older than me. My oldest sister is 11 years older than me. So they were like teenagers. Wow. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and did you, were you like, what, it, what a place. You dance yes. here. That's a big, amazing. No, I've That's always so loved, yeah. And I've always loved, you know, ever since then, I've always loved seeing films in the theater. Like I, it's an yeah. extraordinary, it's an extraordinary experience, I think. It really is. No other way to watch him. I mean, I'm told there are. What is the film that made you cry the most? Are you a crier? You seem to me someone who might not be scared of crying. Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I've cried, and I. This is a, a film I re. There's two vi- films by James Brooks that I revisit quite a bit: Terms of Endearment and Broadcast yeah. News. Right, and those Broadcast. are films that I cry about. Uh, you know, whenever you know, either of them, whenever I watch them, I think because. I think James Brooks does this extraordinarily well is that he he makes comedies mm. that have dramatic turns in them that you would only expect to be in dramatic quote unquote dramatic genre movies. Yeah. I was actually lucky enough to to meet James Brooks once and I said to him I go I go you know people think I'm kind of nuts because sometimes they'll ask me what's my favorite comedy and I'll say terms of endearment. And he said he goes he goes, it's interesting that you say that because we edited it as a comedy. Like we, mm. we, were, we were showing it for audiences. We were finding the laughs. We were cutting at the moment that felt right for the laugh. And so like in some ways, like it's this – for me, the more that you can – an audience can lead you into laughing and then make the left turn into something that's wild, you know, deeply emotional – yeah. It, it really, for me, it really gets me. Well, it's what you do. It's what you do in your stand-up shows. And I think, I, I that, look, I've talked about this before, but I think I think it is the best way to, if, if people laugh, they're letting down a defence, right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what laughter is. Laughter is, is, a, is a, a wall coming down. And if then you go, oh, and here's a serious thing, they're, they're much more open to it. Yeah. Do you cry in real life? Are you a crier? Yeah. Sometimes I use film to cry because I think that there's a lot of tension in me that's not being released. Mm. And so it, 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 you know, it, sometimes it takes a film to get me to cry. I'm, you know, like I, I feel like I had it recently, actually like a more recent example would be like, like spotlight was really intense for me because I, I was raised, I have an old joke where I said I was an altar boy as a kid and the answer is no. I wasn't, and I think it's because they knew I was a talker. But like, the, but I, I was literally an altar boy in Massachusetts, where that film oh takes God. place, like like in the era that it took place. Mm-hmm. And so when I was watching that film, I was watching a screener of it with my wife Jen in our living room, and I actually was crying so hard I had to stop the movie. Oh, wow! I I had to pause it because I couldn't even see the movie i couldn't see through yeah. the tears see um it, not because i was abused but because it sort of dawned on me that that people who i knew must have been mm. it's amazing that film and and weirdly and it's it's a very unemotional film as in it, it it's very it's very well handled it isn't manipulative it isn't melodramatic it's very what's the word restrained yeah tom mccarthy tom mccarthy directed it. it's, it's great yeah it's an amazingly powerful 
that the thing that blows your mind is just a list is at the end just how long yep. that list goes on oh, just a list, list of names and you're like fuck oh me. my gosh yes, best use list. of a list <laughs> yeah yeah gosh Mike Babiglia what's the film that scared you the most do you like being scared <laughs> I don't I actually avoid movies that are scary but I and, and maybe this is why um you ever see this movie Cloak and Dagger no, it's like a me. it's like a I, I actually looked it up because I was like I was like, what is the even the log line for this movie? Yeah. It's a young it's nineteen eighty four. A young boy and his imaginary friend end up on the run while in possession of a top secret spy gadget. It's like an action adventure movie where essentially like I don't know if there's like a murderer or someone who did a crime and all they know about the character is that he has like he's missing fingers. It's like he has two fingers or something. Right. And there's these characters, I think is an old man, old woman who you trust. This is this is from memory. I haven't seen it in a long time. So I, this might be wrong. It was like these characters is like almost like grandparent type characters mm-hmm. that you trust. And there's a moment where the, 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 the grandfather reveals that he has like two fingers. or <sighs> And you're like, oh, my God, the <sighs> character I trusted. And of course, you know, I'm like, I'm like eight years old. And so I'd never I'd never interacted with that kind of a plot yeah. twist before. And so it's that thing where the first time where someone pulls like a certain type of cinematic magic trick on you and you're like, so scared. I trusted you. Yeah, I trusted you. Do you have a theory on this? I don't know if you know this, but I have so many comedians on this show and I would say it is wildly imbalanced the amount of comedians who, who like horror. I would say far more comedians come on this show and say, oh no, I don't like being scared. I don't like horror. There are yeah. some that love it, but I would say, I don't know the exact stats. Let's say 75% of comedians do not want to be scared. Discuss. I don't know why that is, I, but it's true of me. I think that's part of the reason why Jordan Peele's Get Out was so effective, was that mm. it's kind of a mix of like horror, satire, comedy. It's sort of hybrids all of these things. And that's like a genre I can get down with, but like... When it's just sort of relentless, like gore and all this stuff, I'm like, I can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. I don't know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) What is the film that most people don't like? The critics did not like it. It is not acclaimed, but you love it. Well, it's funny because I referenced this earlier and it it's not that P- 
people didn't like it, but I think it was overlooked, which is and uh, my friend Yorma Tacone's movie Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. It was overlooked. It was overlooked. It was one of those movies where when I saw it, and I have a cameo in it, but I'm like, when I saw it in the theater, I don't think I've ever laughed that hard in a movie theater. Right. It's If people don't know it, it's like a movie where... Andy Samberg basically plays kind of like a Justin Bieber style pop star, like an international pop star. But they basically take it in this kind of like every scene is almost like to the level of like a lonely island like sketch. And but then it's but it's causal and it moves and it like has great songs and they're catchy. And like I just I just think that movie should be like in the canon of great comedies. I agree. I remember being surprised that, yeah, it felt like this is going to be fucking huge, this film. And then and then it was overlooked. It's great. Yeah. That's a good shout. What is, on the other side of things, a film that you used to love? You loved it, but you've watched it recently and you go, oh, no, I don't like this anymore. For whatever reason that might be, Mike Papiglia. Well, this is, um, here's my record. Here's my advice to any um, couples, married couples or romantic couples is don't force your significant other to watch a movie that you have not seen since your childhood and don't remember that well and preface it with the phrase this is who i am <laughs> i i oh um i watched i, my wife, and I wa- my wife and i watched the film top gun mm-hmm. and uh i had forgotten it is a homoerotic fighter jet film <laughs> With uh, no plot to speak of, nor stakes, uh, nor humor, nor, I mean, really anything. I mean, this film just simply does not hold up. And there's a scene where (laughs) there's a scene where they're playing beach volleyball and they're like shirtless and oiled up. It's like Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, all these other guys. And they're oiled up and, you know. And, 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 and playing, you know, and, and, and my wife, Jen looks at me and she goes, is this the movie that's who you are? And, uh, and I just had to be like, yep, this is who I am. That's <laughs> yeah. That one does not hold up. And which one are you? Are you Val Kilmer? Yeah, exactly. Goose? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and which one are you? <laughs> I'm the guy who spills his coffee as they do the flyby, I think. Are you Kelly McGillis? Which one are you, please? I know. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh. <laughs> Did you finish the film or were you like, we need to... No, we, need to we didn't make it through. through nope. This. No. Right. That's really funny. What is the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily the film itself is any good, but the experience you had around seeing the film will always make it special to you, Mr. Mike Bigelow. <laughs> There's a couple. One of them is like... Synecdoche, New York. Synecdoche, New York is so special to me. One of the all-time greats. It is, right? Yeah, it is, yes. So, like, I think part of it is my wife and I have a a romance with film together. We have sort of like, we love going to the theater, seeing films together, and... I think one of the most euphoric experiences is when you see something with a partner that is far out Hmm. and it invents its own language and you both get it at the same time in the same way. Yeah. And so like a few, a few films over the years we've had that with where like 
Do you remember Margaret? Do you ever see Margaret? The uh, the K- K- Lonigan. Ken- yeah, Kenny yeah, Lonigan yeah, yeah, yeah. is like that. It's like three yeah. hours long. I mean, it's like totally strange and but it was beautiful and really well done and synected in new york is just like one of those movies where the filmmaker is so committed to taking everything you hold to be true and they split it apart one by one such that sort of you can't love the film like that you have to hate the film but you hate it in a way that you love it and it, it's so strange. I mean, what are your feelings about about Synecdoche? Uh, I mean, I, I I think it's it's amazing. It's amazing, and it and it it makes sense to me. On it, uh, it's so in the same way. Like I really love Magnolia. Synecdoche. I believe that what happened in Magnolia, the, the legend I believe is that P.T. Anderson had made Boogie Nights, and it was a big mm-hmm. hit. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Francis Ford Coppola. Someone said to him, "You have this one window where the film you make next, they, yes. will, make it, they will make anything you want to make next. So yep. if you want to, if you've got this weird thing, this long thing, this mad thing, that's the film you should do next." And he made Magnolia, which I think is brilliant. Brilliant. And Synecdoche, New York, has that similar feeling of like this is the one. Like this is he's going all in, and it's a huge gamble. Because you think Charlie Kaufman was able to do it because of uh, the Jim Carrey movie? Yes, I think I think because I think because of that. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. But Eternal it, Sunshine. It, I'm sorry, Eternal yeah. Sunshine. Yeah, but it feels like he's gone. This is the one, and it's yeah. so ambitious. And there's no way it's it is not the most accessible film. No. I, I totally understand people going fuck this. Uh, yeah, it's it's like hard. It's hard. It's work hard. Sometimes. It also has a kind of logic to it that's that completely makes sense to me. And it and it's all the things we talked about with "Don't Think Twice" and in, "Inside Llewellyn Days." It's about it's about death and it's about not living your life and it's about making something and about the never letting go of it and what is it for and and yet there's also like really funny stuff. The woman's <laughs> house is on fire the whole time. <laughs> what? <laughs> She, she yes. goes. She yes. goes to the, the estate agent. Takes her around the house and she says, "Do you have any questions?" And she says, "I'm slightly worried about the fire." <laughs> and it just, yes. but it sort of makes sense. You go, oh, yeah. "Oh yes, yes." <laughs> and uh, and this this the world is sort of apocalyptic just in the background of shots and this play that's getting bigger and bigger and it's been going on for 17 years and we're still not finished. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and then his other movie is so good too, the animated movie Anomalisa. Yeah, I love that too. It's similarly like completely shouldn't work, mm. Anomalisa. Like, I don't know. It's like a very unlikable protagonist. Yeah. It's animated. It's very dramatic animated movie. Like it's it's also got one of the best sex scenes of all time, and one of the most realistic, awkward yes. sex scenes oh of all time. Yes, oh my gosh, yes. It's amazing that stop motion oh puppets gosh. sincerely having kind of awkward first sex. Yes. It's an incredible bit of work. Wow. Yeah, Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman's, him and his, his movies are incredible, I think. Yeah. And there's just so many layers going on in that film. And, and I don't think, like I say, I can totally get people going, like, oh, this is. 
not for me. <laughs> but I go, yeah. this is a proper like work of art. He's gone. This is the fucking thing. And it's that arguably it's everything. This is a film about living, dying, fear of dying, fear of life, art, making stuff. What is it for? Love, relationship, everything. It's all yeah. in this giant fucking beast of a film. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, same. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is the film that you most relate to, Mike Pabiglia? I think Sideways. Great answer. Great because film, great answer. Tell me. Janet, my wife and I often quote a line from Sideways, and it's um, Thomas Hayden Church's character says to Paul Giamatti's character, he goes, Miles, you understand literature and movies and wine but you don't understand my plight. <laughs> and I feel like it, it, is, it is one of the best pieces of art I've ever seen about the universal feeling of feeling misunderstood. Mm. Because this character, Thomas Hayden Church's character, I don't relate to him. I don't relate no. to the Paul Giamatti character. I don't relate to either of them, really. Yeah. But I understand that... This, Tom, this Thomas Hayden Church character feels shame yeah. because he just doesn't feel understood. And I think it's ca it's capturing this thing that like it's Alexander Payne whose movies I love. And I think mm. Alexander Payne is often really good at capturing a thing that people aren't really making movies about. Absolutely right. Yeah. Which is like a it's like a small thing. Mm. It's like it's like. He's not making a movie about a war. He's making a movie yeah. about like, sometimes we feel misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes things are sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, but don't think twice. It's, and that's, of course, why I make the movies that I make. It's like, don't think twice is about a really simple idea. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Mm. Sometimes your little improv group dream doesn't work out. God. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a fucking monster. Uh, <laughs> what a monster. <laughs> well, you know, Ira Glass, who produced Don't Think Twice and is the host, host and producer of This American Life, etc. Yes. That was the reason he signed on to produce Don't Think Twice is that precise thing is he was like, I don't think there's enough movies about failure. Yeah. Here we go. Might be a big deal. Here we go. What's the sexiest film you've ever seen? Go on, tell us. It's it's so hard to say because I think sex is one of those things that in film is done poorly so often, right? Like, and I think the reason is that you can't really film people having sex, and so like, I agree to disagree, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we we should break that open, but like. For it, like, let me just—I'll say my thesis, and then we can break it open. But like, yeah, yeah. if you want to—if you want to show someone skydiving, you can show someone skydiving. You can have them mm -hmm. skydive. You can film pieces of that and cut it together. With sex, it's like—I don't know—like the closest I've seen to it feeling like sex in my memory is Blue Valentine. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Where where I'm like, oh God, it's so awkward, and. It's so like 
unattractive, but like this is a, the great trick of movies when I think they do it well is it's Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams, the most attractive people on the face of the earth, and they're all dressed down. You know, it's like, that's the great trick of movies is like, let's yeah. dress these attractive people to look like us. And then people are watching, they're like, they're just like me. They're nothing like you. They are not, you look nothing like these people. They're really, 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 really fit. They're just wearing denim. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're just wearing denim. <laughs> why, wait, so why are you saying you can't? I mean, look, you're right. There have been instances of people having sex, like in that one movie they had, se- like yeah, with Chloe Sevigny and like. Oh, the Brown uh, Bunny. Brown Bunny had sex, right? I think. Yeah. yeah. And there's a Mark Rylance film called Adultery or something. Oh, really? It's happened. It's happened. It's been done nine songs. They're really having sex. Oh, oh, gr- oh really? Yeah. Yeah, it happens. It happens I don't know if it's... I think it's against the guild rules, but I think. Oh, is it? Well, don't oh. you think? Wouldn't well, you guess? <laughs> well, that, Would, I'm so sorry. I, mean, I, I'm sorry I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I would guess. But you know what's funny is this This is maybe controversial pick because it's so mainstream. Mm. I thought like I thought Jerry Maguire did a pretty good job of feeling like... like sex romance that's happening similarly like two like impossibly attractive people uh who are dressed down to be like they're just like us they're nothing like you (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a nice answer that doesn't come up in that category there's a subcategory i don't know where you're going to go with this or if you're even comfortable with it uh troubling boners worrying why dons a film you found arousing that you weren't sure you should (laughs) I think this is I had to look this up to see what how inappropriate or appropriate this was. Okay. I think this was be- for me it was Beetlejuice. Love Beetlejuice. This is nineteen eighty eight. So just to be clear, I was ten years old and Winona Ryder I think was fifteen like sixteen, seventeen, I don't know. Okay. She was a teen two teenager. So she's older than me yeah, when yeah, I fine. saw the film. So I, I think, think I'm clean. okay. I haven't recently watched it in Bitter Resident. But <laughs> but like I just remember having like sort of like adolescent sort of like this is sexy kind of mm. thing, but I don't even I don't remember the film. It's a great film. Do they have sex? No, I don't think. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Yeah, but it has like a vi- it has like a vibe to it that's sort of yeah. like I don't know. It has an exciting vibe to it. Like it feels like uh, I don't know. It it feels like there, even if there isn't sex in it, it feels like there could be sex in it, maybe. <laughs> the threat of it. sex is there. The threat of sex, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, that's good. Why is it objectively the greatest <laughs> film of all time? Since obviously there's no such thing as objective, uh, the objective greatest film, I'm just going to throw in a non sequitur. No one will think is the best movie of all time, but I will just make a case for it, which is Children of Men. You can have it, sir. You can have Children of Men. It is. It could absolutely, objectively be one of the greatest films of all time. The reason why I think that is, is that it is a, for, I think it's a brilliant example of practical camera work and stunts mm-hmm. that are not CGI, but achieve the magic of film at its best to achieve a high concept in service of real characters 
going through realistic but insane circumstances. Yeah. The sequence in the car. Yeah, I uh, mean, the, ones the, the sequence car in is... the car is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in film. Yeah. And the, the, motor, the, motor, the motorcycle thing. Amazing. And it's all real. And there's a all video real. of it online yeah. that you can watch on YouTube of the creation, the behind the scenes of making that scene. It is unbelievable. Yeah. The only thing that's not real is the ping pong book. And you're like, that's oh. the bit that's not real? <laughs> oh, right. Right. The, the, him spitting the ping pong ball in her right. mouth, I believe, is, is CGI. But you're like, wow. of all the things in that sequence that are yeah. not real, it was only the ping pong ball. Incredible. I just think, like, Children of Men is... I mean, look, it's it's not an underrated film. People get that yeah. it's a great film. But I don't think sometimes people grasp with the, those types of genres like sci-fi, sort of dystopian future type films, I think they get put into a genre. Like, that's that genre. But actually, to me, that movie transcends genre, and it's funny. Michael Caine is funny in that movie. Yeah, It's funny. It's weird. Uh, It's about being alive and why we even want to be alive. It's about refugees. It's about the future and where the future could go. And it's like, and it has, it has a tinge of hope at the end, which is very hard to pull off. Yeah. Really good answer. You can have it. 10 points, actually. That's the first time you've, oh, wow. you've got points. So. <laughs> and, all, and also any of, any of Chaplin's films, because I think he's the greatest movie star of all time. Love, I love that. I any love of that. his films. Literally yeah. any of his films. Love it. Love he that. will never, I believe he will never be matched as a performer. I can't argue with you. And here's here's why I think he'll never be matched. I don't think that ethically we could create another Charlie Chaplin because he was basically like a like a child actor mm. who was like traveling the country. Like you might know this better than me, but like with his parents, they were like like a sort traveling. Of like it was like circus vaudeville kind of thing. Yeah, and he was like performing when he was like five, I think. Yeah. And then like, I mean, he's kind of like the Tiger Woods of movies. <laughs> well, when he does the stuff, he does, you know, the end of City Lights is all the things we talk about. It's so moving. It's such a yeah. funny film. And then the end is just this beautiful. It's just, you're right. The man's good. Yeah. What is the film that you could or have watched the most over and over again? So I, I watch a lot of Noah Baumbach films repeatedly. Like I've watched Squid, Squid and the Whale repeatedly. Love that film. I've watched Francis Ha repeatedly. Right. I, I like the repetition of movies that have a blend of like lovely cinematography, humor, music, and dramatic tension. Mm-hmm. So, so like, for example, like it's my wife and I like always quote – this line in Squid and the Whale, where I, if, I don't know if you know the film, but it's like, yeah, I love it, it. it's yeah, it's like they're they're in the, these two characters, Laura Linney's character and Jeff Daniels' character are in the middle of a divorce, and the, the tension is so palpable between them, and the kids always quote things that the parents say, which is a reflection on. I mean, it's almost making me choke up talking about mm-hmm. it because it's so. My parents aren't divorced, but it's like so upsetting to me yeah yeah but there's there's this thing where the the jeff daniels character says you know we're moving to such and such a neighborhood and it's the fillet of the neighborhood and it's such an overcompensation yeah 
that's so sad for this man to say that's that where they're living is the fillet of the neighborhood. I mean, it's just the use of language is so absurd and but believable. And then his son repeats it and he goes, you know, dad says it's the fillet of the neighborhood. And you're just like, oh, just like the rep. The repetition yeah. by the child of the sad thing that the sad dad said. <laughs> You're repeating the sad things. Oh, it's... Don't repeat the sad thing. Just judge the sad thing silently and then let it go. But no, it's worse than that. They just keep yeah. So Jen and I always say, you know, we'll talk about our apartment. We'll go, it's the flay of the neighborhood. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh let's not dwell in this part but what's yes. the worst film you've ever seen i won't name one good man i won't name one but i will dis- i'll describe a type of movie that i despise okay. people know what this is they understand mm-hmm. what this is when they see it i i hope it's a type of movie where it feels like it is engineered by a studio and it has no director to speak of no writer to speak of it's just about sort of a nebulous concept. For example, a holiday, and it has a bunch of stars, and then it's called the holiday name. And you just go, why? Oh, you're why talking are... about your mother's day, your father's day, your, <laughs> your, your New day. Year's day. Yeah, yeah, New yeah. Birthday. Birthday, yes. birthday boy. Yes, exactly. Okay. And it's like, and, and it's like, it. I just feel like, why are you doing this? Why are, like, well, go home. Spend yeah, don't a, don't work in the movie business. Yeah, they're too hard to make. Don't don't make one you don't don't give a shit about. I hate those movies. I really because I think they give movies a bad name. Yeah, yeah, you can. I I agree completely. You're in comedy. You're very funny. What's the <laughs> film that made you laugh the most? The movie that made me laugh most recently is Money Pit. It's Tom Hanks' film. Love Money Pit. Love Money Pit. Money Pit is it's, the it's a better scene. Yeah. Magnificent. <laughs> Funny if it is, it captures a thing about, about being in a relationship and trying and failing to fix something together and having this eternal optimism that it will work even though it won't work and it fails again and again and again. My wife, I was we rewatched it recently because I I watched it as a kid when it came out mm. probably the eighties and then we rewatched it recently and I was crying laughing such that Jen pulled out a phone and videoed me crying laughing at the same time just because she had never seen me laugh like that before. Ah, love that, love that. It's a great film, Mike Mabiglia. You've been. More of a pleasure than even I expected. I expected <laughs> you to be a big pleasure. However, when you were on holiday with your family, you were in Hawaii and you were yeah. on the beach and you'd been goofing around quite a bit. <laughs> Let's be honest. You'd been goofing and they were like, Daddy's funny. Everyone was having fun. And you walked by a tree. Uh, you actually went to urinate is why you were heading towards the trees. And you, a coconut fell off the tree and hit you in the head and killed you instantly and your family laughed so hard oh daddy's done a bit he's done a bit with a coconut and then you didn't get up and they were like his commitment to bits is legendary 
And then they went they went for dinner oh. and you didn't join them. And then they went for breakfast. They slept. And they were like, he's really yeah. committed to this bit. And the next morning oh. they came back and then they were like, oh, shit. And I was walking around with a coffin. You know what I'm like. And I was like, well, have you seen Mike? And they said, yeah, I think he was doing bits, coconut bits. And I go down to the beach. You've been pecked to death as well by yeah. pelicans, which I didn't even know were in Hawaii, but they were there. Pelicans are eating you, your family is standing around. <laughs> I go, listen, listen, I'll take care of this. I get your body and there's fucking bits of bird, there's bits of palm tree, there's bits of co- coconut. By the way, it smells delicious. It's very coconut yes, yeah, A lovely yeah. smell. Oh, anyway, I get your, your wife, I get Jenna. I say, can you help me just chop up the body? And I give her a machete and we start chopping you up into bits so we can fit you in the coffin. Get all the bits in it. She was very happy to do it, by the way. We put you in the coffin. It's absolutely full in the coffin. It's rammed. There's only enough room in this coffin for me to slide one DVD into the side with you. Oh, wow. For you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. And one night is your night. Which film are you taking to show the people of heaven, Mr. Mike Wabiglia? I thought about this quite a bit. And I think it's... um because I don't know precisely what heaven will be and what the people in heaven's context will be for being there, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, what's a movie that is just about being alive and that you do not need to understand the the location and context of these people to relate to the feelings of the people? The thing I thought of was, a, what's eating Gilbert Grape? Great idea. Do you, do you remember it? Yeah, I do remember it very well. So, so What's Eating Gilbert Grape is this sort of quaint film from, I think, the 1990s. Correct. Where, where Johnny Depp and I think Juliette Lewis think play so. like a, I yes, think they play right, romantic right. opposites. And it's, you know, it's about like a family that comes through town and they strike up some friendships and it's, and the mother is sort of morbidly obese and, and it's very human. I think the the reason I thought of it is I have nothing in common with any of the characters. I don't know what it's like to live in the middle of nowhere and, you know, travel with a tra- in a trailer and with, the, with your family. I don't know what it's like for my mother to have this extremely serious health condition, et cetera. And yet I found myself just crying and crying through this movie and completely relating to the human experience of it. And I thought... That's a good. That's a good movie to explain what being alive is like. You're very, very good, Mister Mike Bigger. Yeah? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this. Is there is there anything you would tell people to look out for to watch your new show, for example? Oh gosh. So the old man in the pool. I'm going to bring to the Leicester Square Theater in June. I, I did the last show there. It's called the new one. And, yes. Um. It's on. It was on Broadway, and then it was. Um. It, it's on Netflix now. It's on. You know, and then my special before that is called Thank God for Jokes. I think I did that at the Leicester Square, too, actually. Um, You're obsessed with the place. Yeah, I like that place a lot. I actually, I I love that. I mean, the last time I was there, I was was trading off spots with, like, Stuart Lee, who's incredible. And, like, you know, he was doing a different time slot than me. And he's great. And I just love, I love British comics. I love Daniel Kitson. You know, I love Jimmy Carr. Like, I, I, I... Sarah Milliken, uh, Nish Kumar, uh, Ashling B. Like th- these are people who like I really admire, and I want to uh, I want to visit all parts of of Britain with more regularity because I whenever I'm there I enjoy it so much. So that's all I'd say about that. If you if you want to come to the show, come see it. I I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it my all, and I'm very proud of the show. 
This is very exciting. Mike Rabiglia, you've been wonderful. Thank you for your time and for doing this. I appreciate you and I hope you have a wonderful death. Good night. <laughs> Thank you. So that was episode 183. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 20 minutes of chat, secrets and videos with Mike. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and write about the film that means the most to you and why. I don't care what you think of the podcast. I care about the films you love. It's very much appreciated and it helps everything else. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Mike for doing the show. Thanks to Scroobius Pib and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics. And Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come join me next week for another brilliant guest. But in the meantime, that is it for now. So have a lovely week. And please, more than ever, be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind. Sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more. Online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.